All right, we now uh, get the privilege to open up God's Word together, and we're actually going to spend most of our time this morning in the book of James, but before we turn there, let's first go to Matthew's Gospel. There's something I want to draw to our attention there in, in Matthew chapter 26. And as we're turning there, um, when we have communion together, the, the message is, is shorter. Uh, we step away from our weekly exposition. So I'm looking at the clock. Uh, I just have to share with you all, because you all know me. Most of you know me. Um, I was telling friends, I look, at, I look at brevity in the face and I laugh, right? It's kind of my joke. When I, told, when I told Gardner that the goal is 20 minutes, he said, Joel, some of your... Um, your text messages and your voice memos are 70% longer than that. So, but I, I will indeed aim to be swift. So Matthew 26, the reason I'm having us turn here is, is again, since it's communion, and when we, when we celebrate communion, that's what we do. We celebrate, and we also remember, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And these verses will both help us do that, and I think segue uh, us, us into the verses we'll look at in James. So in Matthew 26, I'm going to read verses 36 through 39. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And if you go down to verse 42, again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. So, this is, this is the Lord. This is our Lord. This is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. And in this moment, in the moments before he goes to the cross, he's in agony. Uh, he's in agony. Of course, we, we know from Hebrews that he also endured the cross for the joy that was set before him, that that's also true. But, but in these moments right here, he knows the experience that's about, that's about to await him. You know, he had set his face like, like flint toward Jerusalem for the express purpose of bearing the sins of his people, of his bride. And, but yet, so what does he do, though, in this moment when it gets nearer? He, he prays fervently. If we were to look at Luke's gospel, we would see that when he's praying so intensely that he's sweating and his sweat is like drops of blood. So he's praying fervently, and he's begging that the cup will pass. And, and what is the cup? It, it's God's right wrath poured out to punish the sins of his people. Jesus, and, and this is, Jesus is praying this when he knows God's will of decree for the crucifixion. 
he's not, he's not unacquainted with Isaiah's statement that it was the will of the Lord to bruise him, to crush him. And yet, it, we see Jesus here, he appeals to God's will and he yields to God's will. And so we, sh- we should start by asking ourselves, how, how might that instruct us? Um, in other words, uh, we, you and I, we don't see what's around the corner. We, we don't have an inside pass into every notion of God's secret will of decree. But Jesus is different, right? He's divine. So does that difference between us and Jesus, does that, does that lessen the necessity for us to entrust ourselves to God's will, or does that only amplify it? I think, and I think you sense the answer uh, in the rhetorical question, but we, we need these reminders because in our wrestle with our flesh, we so often are tempted to be presumptuous or to, to not really submit ourselves under God's will. So with those thoughts in mind, now please turn over to the book of James. James chapter 4. So from chapter 4, I'm going to read verses 13 through 15. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. Um. Some people think of James as sort of the New Testament counterpart to the book of Proverbs. If you read through it, it's full of sort of staccato statements, and he doesn't hold back, especially when it comes to the rich and the, and the proud. I mean, you can kind of sense James like yanking them by the collar. And I don't know if parents do this anymore when their kids sleep in, but sort of dousing them with a pitcher of water to, to, to wake up. That's, I think that's why he's so sharp with the words like, your, your life's just a vapor. Now, it is true that our life is just a vapor. It's, it's, a, it's a short span. We also know that our life is very valuable because God gives it value. But that's not James's focus here. He's trying to wake them up to a certain reality. And in a moment, we'll, we'll focus on what that reality is. But just to kind of address a potential misunderstanding, James's rebuke here is not mainly rooted in the fact that they tried to plan at some level. The rebuke is not in aiming to plan so much as it is their posture, you know, what, what is their posture? I mean, they're, they're so certain that what they say is going to happen will happen that they're assuming not just for the next step, but for the entire next year. Um, if, you, if you read the language, it just says, we will go into such a town, spend a year there, and make a profit. It, it, it is a posture of presumption that does not take into account who it is that actually controls reality. And that, that's the reality that they need to be woken up to is just God's immense sovereignty. 
I love that line from the song, uh, I think it's, I sing the mighty power of God that, um, while all that borrows life from thee is ever in thy care. In any moment uh, that we're alive or do anything or think anything, it's, it's always actively sustained by God and his intervention. And when it comes to making plans, we can try to be wise, but we need to hold our plans loosely because we need to know our position. Uh, the way that um, Proverbs puts it in chapter 16, verse 9, is the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. The, the reason I reference, by the way, um, that some kind of planning is not totally out of bounds is I have to justify the fact that I'm an estate planning attorney, right? No, it's not just that. I mean, if you, if you look in Scripture, there is, there is an appropriate amount of planning. Like, so for example, um, when Jesus is trying to get uh, future disciples to count the cost of discipleship, he implies a certain wisdom when he references builders who, who count the cost for construction or kings who deliberate over whether to engage in battle based on military capacity. If you have a family or a business or work for a company, if you have a budget for finances, then this, you know what this means. If you've ever used a calendar, you know that all forms of planning are not out of bounds. But we always need to be reminded that what actually will happen in spite of our plans is up to God, even when things seem like they're good to us. It's I am praying that, that Tom and Brad and the folks from Antioch will get back down to Haiti soon, but it's, I, I see kind of God's providence that I had chosen to preach on this topic. You know, uh, I just prayed last week, Lord, give them safe travels, get, you know, all these things. And I'm still going to be praying that for future trips, but it's just kind of this, I don't want to say it's funny, but it's an interesting reminder that God decides what happens. And I think if you've walked with the Lord for a long period of time, you begin to realize, I know I've begun to realize, that's actually a happy state to be in. If what actually happened was up to my plans, ultimately, I would be a disaster. I mean, I've, I've just had too many things. I, and that state of living where it's not just mere trying to be wise or prepared, but when it, for me, I can sense it in my heart when it shifts towards sort of anticipating every angle and trying to massage situations and sort of hinging my contentment on I'm determined that this is going to happen, and, and then, of course, I just become doubly frustrated when it doesn't happen. I know I'm in a bad way when I start drifting into that mode of thought. And there is such comfort and joy in knowing that God is sovereign and we are not. And so this posture that, that James wants us to have is we should say, if the Lord wills, we will do this and do that. Now, I do think it can be helpful to actually say those words, and there's some traditions in Christianity where that's, that's been a thing. Um, but I, I do want to say I don't think this is mainly an instruction for an, ex, an external formula. Um, just like the people he's rebuking, I don't think their main problem necessarily was that they were going to the streets and telling everybody that this is what we're going to do. Uh, maybe they did, I don't know, but the, the main problem is that this is what they were believing in their heart. So the antidote to that is to believe in our heart, <laughs> to have a posture of persistent dependence. We, we, want, we want a disposition of dependence on the Lord. Now, um, because this is going to be a short message, I'm going to avoid the temptation, and believe me, it's a very real temptation for me, <laughs> to, to get into the weeds on 
all the nuances of God's will. But I'll just say this. Um, there's an excellent short book written by Kevin DeYoung called Just Do Something. And he references, when we, when we look to seek God's, for God's will, God's will is spoken of in, in different types of ways in the Bible, and we speak about it in different types of ways among each other as believers. And so, because I think we have to acknowledge that even if we avoid the error of presumption that we see in James 4, like let's say we're, we're solid on God's sovereignty. Let's say we genuinely want to please him which I trust you experience that sometimes as well. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're Christians. Sometimes we, we think with the flesh, but, but we should in increasing measure be wanting to please the Lord and resting in his plan. Even if we're there, though, God's word, while totally sufficient to let us know what we need to know about God and himself to obey his commands and have principles for life and to gain eternal life and know what the gospel is, God does not choose to disclose to us in his word what we should have for lunch on Wednesday or whether we should go to this university or that university. He does not explicitly tell us that in the Bible. He's not left us without resources. We have the Holy Spirit. We have godly counsel. But my point is we do genuinely and I think legitimately face situations where we have a, a dilemma or a difficulty or a crucial decision and we want, we want to please the Lord and we're distressed because we're not sure what to do. Well, what, what, do we, what do we do then? Well, let's turn earlier in the book of James to James chapter 1. And before I read these verses, <laughs> the summary DeYoung gives is there's God's will of decree his will of desire and his will of direction. His will of decree is his sovereign will, everything that he ordains. So everything that God ordains comes to pass, and if it came to pass, it's because God ordained it. In that sense, everything is God's will of decree. God's will is also spoken of as his will of desire. That would be like his moral will, what he wants us to do, the commands he gives us, or even speaking about his own heart, what he delights in. He doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. He desires that all would, you know, be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So we see God's will of decree. We see his will of desire, but we oftentimes get tripped up. What's his will of direction, though? And so when we find ourselves in this spot, James 1, verses 5 through 8, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The wisdom that James is referring to here is not primarily an accumulation of knowledge as much as it is an application of knowledge. It has to do with right living and right conduct. We do need to know some things, especially we need to know God's word. That will fill us with all kinds of wisdom because there are some things God has clearly disclosed. We're to abstain from sexual immorality, we're to gather as a church, we're to pray, we're to be generous, we're to evangelize. That, knowing all those things, and as we study the word and, and hear the word taught in our churches and among Christian friends, 
will help us in a lot of situations, but in circumstances where we don't know what to do, we pray for wisdom, and the wisdom is mainly geared toward right living, right conduct. I think we've all known of people who might be insanely intelligent, but they're, they're fools. Uh, I mean, to use an extreme example, think of Adolf Hitler. My understanding is that he wasn't, he wasn't lacking in leadership skills, right? He wasn't lacking in the, in the ability to motivate a populace and be organized and strategic. Um, and, I, and I don't think he was unintelligent. But he wasn't wise. He wasn't wise. And James would write in the next chapter that God has chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith. And that rich faith seeks for and obtains this, this, this wisdom. Now, it's, it's not my, this is my opinion. I, I'm not persuaded. It's something I'm, to be honest with you, I'm still evaluating and looking in, looking in the scriptures and talking to friends. But I'm not persuaded that what James has in mind here is primarily wisdom to gain a clue or an insight as to what is going to happen next, circumstantially. I think it's mainly the, we're looking for God to grace us with the ability to navigate trials with integrity. He, James has just been talking about trials. And if you don't mind holding your place in James 1 and just temporarily flipping over to James 3, the reason I say this is when James gives further explanation to this wisdom in chapter 3, his emphasis is on character traits that get developed in us. He gives a description of what it's like to be wise, more so than he does, you know, to be wise means you predict things and they come true. That, that's not what he says. I'm just going to simply read one verse, James chapter 3, verse 17. But the wisdom from God, so, that, so this is the wisdom we're praying for in chapter 1, right? The wisdom from God is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, and sincere. That first descriptor, pure, that's really the, the primary attribute of wisdom, and then the other adjectives give it further definition. Because if you go back to chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, there's a caution about if we lack faith or doubt. And in verse 8, that person is said to be double-minded. The way the Greek reads, it literally means to have two souls, to have a mixed devotion. In other words, um, part of you wants to please God and, and, and be wise in how you navigate your circumstances. The other part of you doesn't really think you need God's direction. You want to figure it out on your own, or you don't want to come to Him humbly. And God's saying that person should not expect he's going to get the wisdom that he's seeking for. But when we have a singular devotion to God and a hearty trust in Him and His plans, then, in, then our wisdom becomes pure. It is unmixed in that sense. And an unmixed devotion to God starts to show itself with things like gentleness and peace. By the way, 
if what this mainly meant was that we're supposed to get a clue into what's coming around the corner, I don't know that wisdom would be described as being open to reason. <laughs> In other words, if we know what's happening and don't need to be persuaded on anything, we might not need to be open to reason. But one of the actual adjectives he gives for this wisdom from above is being open to reason. Again, we are to be wise, but our wisdom is not like God's in the sense that he has perfect wisdom. So the wisdom we have is to seek to live in a way that honors him. So that means that even if we're facing trials, we, we, we can pray that God would help us to remain peace-loving in the midst of it, to trust, to trust his plans. Now, I do want to add I definitely don't think it's out of bounds to pray for God to grant us clarity and peace when we face crucial decisions. I, I do that. I do that frequently. But I would add some caveats. I think we do well to not enter those types of prayers with a sense of entitlement because God, although he's promised us wisdom to handle it, he hasn't promised to tell us exactly what he's going to do. He might give you a strong sense. And here's the other caveat. When he does choose to do that, that's usually affirmed by other trusted, mature believers, and especially in hindsight. We're more likely to trace God's will of decree in hindsight than we are to pronounce it in advance. I think when we try to pronounce it in advance is when we start swapping places with God. I think that's when we start falling into James 4. <laughs> Um, now, obviously, if, if you're praying for something that you know is God's will, Lord, I believe it's your will for me to abstain from sexual immorality, you're on safe ground because he's plainly told us. But for the things he hasn't plainly told us, where he wants us to exercise discernment, these are the situations where we ask for wisdom, and that's actually very liberating. He's not, I don't think God ultimately wants us to be burdened, burdened with unlocking the key of what's around the corner. He wants us to know that he has planned what is around the corner and that we can trust him so that when we actually ask for and receive this wisdom, we're believing that God is good and gracious and loving and holy and just and will work out all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Ultimately, the faith we're to exercise is not faith in a specific prayer or a proposition, but faith in a person. Now, we might ask, that's a pretty radical faith um, to entrust ourselves to God. How do we know that we can trust Him? Well, there's a lot that can be said by that, about that, but I think the loudest message is what the table reminds us of. We can trust God because he proved his love to us by not sparing his son and sending him to the cross. This is a God we can trust. Um, in the words of Romans 8, I'll just read that to you. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. And actually, in the James 1 verses, if you look at the language, the phrasing is actually that God, 
we must ask the constantly giving God. And when it says that he gives without reproach, that means he's not reluctant. He's not hesitant. I don't know if you've had the experience of being suspicious of human givers. Maybe you have an uncle or an aunt who says, uh, hey, I'm going to um, give you this financial gift. Or I'm going to put you up in this hotel, but you kind of know there's some strings attached. This means that we should feel obligated to visit for them, them for Christmas next year. You, you know what I'm talking about. That's not the way God gives. <laughs> he, he's not tired of us asking, especially when we're asking for something like this. When we're asking for wisdom to be sustained by him and to navigate with grace our circumstances. He's, he likes to do it. <laughs> he wants us to ask, and he wants to give it to us. Right. And, and that relationship with our Heavenly Father, it works, and it's di dynamic because our Lord has gone before us and taken the penalty. He was crucified, and he rose from the grave.